Don't mind me, I'll do a little bit of housekeeping up here. I tend to walk backwards and I may end up being baptized again this morning. So let's get that out of the road to start off with. It always hits me, that song that we just sung. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross, and I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. If that doesn't make us stand to our feet and then sing those words, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, then we're in big trouble. This morning, it's my aim that all of us, every single one sitting in this room, could sing that. But not all of us can right now, because not all of us have come to the cross. Bit of a weird introduction, but it's one that I give anyway. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Ruth chapter 1. And as you do so, I bring you greetings from Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Placerville. Um, I can honestly say we pray for you guys every Wednesday night because you're in our prayer bulletin, you're in the world, the state, and the nation, and you're slipped in number three. doesn't mean you're third of our favorites, it just means that's where you're at in the order, so don't take offense. But we do pray for you guys, we love you all. Um, I wish the people up the hill could see the warmth and the love that there is in this building. I bring greetings back to them and tell them how wonderful it is, but it is a privilege for me to be here. For those of you who don't mean, know me, my name is Merv Campbell. I've been around these parts for six years in the States, hopefully to become a citizen very soon. I do keep my Irish passport, so half and half, which is okay. But we're here about learning from the Word of God this morning, and so let us do that by turning to Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to take and read the first seven verses this morning. Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malhon and Chilhon. They were Ethraites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malhon and Chilhon died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Amen. This is God's holy word. Let's take a few moments and pray to our great God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, your day. We do thank you for the privilege it is to be in your house to worship with God's people. 
We ask as we come now around your word that you would illuminate it to our hearts, that you would send forth your spirit amongst us to revive our hearts in these days. Dear Lord, we pray for those who are cold and somewhat solemn to these things, that you, dear Lord, would revive them again. For those who know you not, we ask, O Lord, that you would save their souls. And that whatever we do today, even later on as we eat and as we drink and as we have baptisms, as we sing and as we pray, that our great God, these things would be done to your honor and to your glory. We leave all these things before you in Christ's precious name. Amen. The book of Ruth is a wonderful story. It's somewhat short in the fact that it's only four chapters long. And many people throughout the ages have been touched by the sweetness and the kindness that we read off in those four chapters. People have also been drawn to the book because of its love story. It's common in modern marriage ceremonies, especially where I come from, that they quote Ruth 1 verse 16 where it says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Man, if people would just look into people's eyes and say that today, wouldn't it be great? But it also is somewhat of a Cinderella story, in which Ruth, who if I get invited back, we'll learn off next time, who Ruth finds herself somewhat of a true Prince Charming. And so the book of Ruth could be looked at as somewhat of a rags-to-riches story, as a fairy tale. And although the human relationships in this story are encouraging to us as believers, and the characters are somewhat worthy of, of you know, of emulation and, and growing towards them, it's hardly the main point of the whole book. What is that overarching theme and the purpose for this writing of the book of Ruth? We have to remember that Ruth was written in the period of the Judges. And it's characterized as one in which it says in Judges 1.25, there was no king in Israel. But the book of Ruth, if you were to scroll all the way to the very last verse of the book, the very last yeah, verse, it anticipates the coming of a great king. And a great king to the throne of Israel. It records the ancestry of King David that most beloved king in the history of Israel. And in, in some sense, the book reaches that somewhat climax, but not quite there in the coming of David through the ancestors, ancestry of Ruth and Boaz. But the book actually serves as a greater purpose to the greatest king that would ever come, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed the Son of of David. If we were to read Matthew 1, 1 through 17, which is normally read around this, the time of Christmas, many of the characters that we, that we read of in Ruth are listed there as the ancestry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the great overarching theme of the book of Ruth is the glorious and wonderful coming of the Messiah, the King of Kings, in the Lord of Lords. But in the first seven verses of Ruth, we're introduced to a family. 
And the man at the head of that family is Elimelech. I struggle to say that, especially with a dry mouth. So if I say it different now and again, bear with, it's just the accent. They did tease me when I preached at this at Grace Reformed. So you could be a better church here and say nothing, okay? Cover it in love, okay? But Elimelech lived during the time and the ages of the judges. And it's a very, very sad tale. It's one that when reading this and going through the commentaries, if you know me, you'll know I'm a bit of an emotional guy, and it actually drew me to tears. Why? Because here is a man who chose to walk away from the Lord and the plan that God had for his life and take his family somewhere that he should never have went. And his family paid a terrible price. We're told that Elimelech takes his family to a place called Moab. Moab was located just across the Jordan River, east of the Promised Land. Now, there was nothing wrong with the land per se, so to speak, with the soil and the dirt and all the rest, but it was the people there that was the problem. Why? Because they worshipped pagan gods. The Moabites were the descendants of a man named Moab. That man who had that relationship that we read of in Genesis 19, a horrible thing happened. They were a proud people. They were a lawless people. They were immoral. They were brutally violent in everything that they did. You want to learn more about the people of Moab? If you're taking notes, Leviticus 18, read it. Deuteronomy 9, Isaiah 16, Psalm 60 and verse 8. These were a terrible, horrible people. They attacked and oppressed Israel time and time and time again, seeking to destroy the children of Israel. This was a people, if you're to read Psalm 60, verse 8, God calls them this. God says, Moab is my washpot, which is where the title for the sermon comes this morning. Three tombstones in a washpot. This phrase means that they were a despised thing. They were compared to that vessel, that vessel that contained the water to be used by slaves to wash the feet of a conquering hero. It really couldn't get any worse than what God described them to be. God says that they are nothing and that they will be reduced to the lowest forms of slavery. And it's to this people this land and these, what they did, that Elimelech moves his family. He takes them from what was a good place to somewhere that's wicked and despised. We see a picture of a person who willingly turns his back on the things of God and pays that awful price. And so this morning, as I've said, my sermon title is Three Tombstones and a Washpot. And I want to open up these first seven verses under four headings. Does anyone have the right time? Good, I was wrong. I'm at 11.05. And those of you who have your hot pot and potlucks across the road would have been going, uh, it's burning, can you hurry up please? So I'm glad we got the right time. But we're going to look at this passage under four points. We're going to look at it as desperate circumstances dangerous choices, 
deadly consequences and deliberate changes. So first of all, desperate circumstances. What on earth would have caused this man to walk away from where he was? Well, there was somewhat of a threefold famine in the land at that time. We can read that and go, there was a famine and think, oh, it's just there wasn't any food. And that's the first one. First one tells us that indeed there was a material famine in the land. It describes a situation that Elimelech faced and his family faced, telling us that there was a famine. Now, famine is that extended dearth or a time when there's food is very hard to find or in fact may not be found and you can go very, very, very hungry. Coming from Ireland, you all know about the potato famine. If you don't, please go read about it. It's a time when the rain came, the potatoes rotted, and the Irish people died. There was a famine. It, in fact, it, it impacted some of my family way years ago. But that was the first somewhat famine in the land. But it wasn't the only famine in the land at that time. There was a moral famine. Verse 1 tells us that this story takes place during the time of the judges. And it's the attitude of the people during those, those days that's summed up in the very last verse in the book of Judges, where it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and this is the prominent part, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It can be best described as a time of turbulence and a time of social upheaval. These were days that were marked by lawlessness, by idolatry, by false religion, by theft, by drunkenness, homosexuality, sexual perversion, violence, national division, civil war, and extreme unbelief. Sound familiar? Sounds like the days that we live in, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Days that are not too different from the ones that you and I live in today. But what else should we expect? When every man does what's right in his own eyes, what a horrible thing that is. But then there's that third aspect of the famine in the land. We've had the food, we've had the moral famine. Now there's a missionary famine in the land also. You see, often in the Old Testament periods, God used famine as a tool of discipline against His people. When His people strayed away from Him at times, He would reach out to them and call them back in orchestrating a famine. If you were to read, and I will read Deuteronomy 11, it says this, "'Take care, lest your heart be deceived.'" And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly of the land that the Lord is giving you. you want further clarification on that this afternoon or even after the, the baptismals later on, read Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, where the Lord has the same sort of language where if you turn aside and serve other gods, heavens will be shut over 
and there will be somewhat of a famine. Often, as we pass through this life, God will orchestrate famines in our lives as well. It may be at times that we have that spiritual famine where it's as if the heavens become like brass and the Lord indeed seems very far away. Perhaps it takes the form of a financial famine when there's more month than there is money. It may take the place of a physical famine where health and well-being become elusive. Whatever those types of famines that come upon you at that time, God's intention is not to drive you away from Him, but it's to draw you nearer to Him, to draw you closer to Him, to trust in Him, and to lean on to Him, and only doing that by saving faith in Him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How do you react to your famine? How do you react when at times what you think is blessing suddenly turns around and becomes a time of devastation? And it's as if at times the walls are caving in upon you. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Perhaps your health takes a hit. Perhaps your bank balance takes a hit. Perhaps you get on your knees and it's as if your prayers hit the ceiling and come back and you're cold. How do you react? How do you as a believer react to those times? Can I encourage you this morning not to run to yourself or to others, but to run to God, to run to the only one who can help you in your time of difficulties, in your times of trials, in your times of hardness, run to the cross. We just sung it. We were beggars and filthy and and so many other names that we could say, but there are children here. And yet Christ loved us and He drew us on to Himself. Even before we even knew anything about Him, He loved us and He cared for us. So in your times of hardship and in your times of difficulty, do not do what Elimelech did and run to somewhere else. Run to God and put your faith and your trust in God alone. So that's point one. Then point two that we're going to look at is dangerous choices. As we see in the second part of verse one and into verse two, Elimelech did not respond correctly at all. Let's notice some some mistakes that he made, not only to himself, but also to his family. You see, Elimelech chose to leave the promised land. Verse 1. It tells us that this man made a conscious decision. He stopped and he pondered and he thought and he made that conscious decision to leave Bethlehem Judah for the country of Moab. 
The name Bethlehem means house of bread. And the name Judah means praise. And at the time when we read this, neither those two names are living up to what they mean. There was indeed no bread in the house of bread, and there was no reason for rejoicing and praise. However, while that geographical location failed to live up to their names, so did Elimelech. For his name means, my God is king. If that had been true of this man, he would have known, and we should know as believers, that God's valleys do not always last forever, and that God in the end always takes care of his people. Remember who he was. He was Elimelech, but who was his relative? His relative was Boaz. And although we're not going to go any further than verse 7, Boaz chose to stay in the land that the Lord had given them. And if you look at verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. He had a lot. And if I keep coming back, we'll learn more of what Boaz has and what he can do. But yet Elimelech chose to leave his inheritance. He chose to leave that promised land and head off where God would not bless him at all. This is a scene repeated time and time and time again. Here is a person who proclaims to be a believer, and yet they're not. When famine comes in their life, what do they do? They run away from God. Maybe a trial rose in their life, and they were blindsided by it, and they didn't see it coming. And what do they do? As it were, they pull up their coat and they leg it. Maybe they were placed in some sort of financial crisis. And they place God after their income. Listen, I've been in that situation. When you go to work one morning and two large planes fly into a tar, and by the end of it, you're out of a job. Why? Because I worked for Bombardier. I used to build airplanes. You go to work and you think, great, I'll be getting paid on Friday. Sorry, sir. We're having to let you go. What do you do? You get on your knees and you cry on to God and you ask Him to help you. Perhaps someone is struggling to deal with, as what the Puritans say, that darling sin. That sin that we just like to kind of clip the edges off. And it keeps growing. That sin that people don't really want to give up. We know we should, but we don't. As a Puritan says, get to the root and pull it clean out. Don't just cut the top off. Get to where it's down and deep and hard and difficult and seek repentance. But there are some who don't want to do that. There are some, even when these sins are confronted and told them, what do they do? 
will look you in the eye and say, who do you think you are? Perhaps they're members of churches or perhaps they call themselves believers and when you call them out on these things, what do they do? They run. Brothers and sisters, we should be oh so thankful and praise God when men and women have the courage and the backbone to look us in the eye and say, hey, are you struggling? Do you need help? How can I pray for you? Please do not run the other way, but embrace that person and praise God for them. Why? Because we're in this walk together. I've said it many times and I'll say it again. You don't sit there by yourself. Later on, people are going to be baptized and added to a church. What's the point of being added to the church if you think you're a lone ranger? You're in this together. You're in there to pray with one another, to go through the hard times. When you're deep in those trenches and you have your brother or your sister beside you, you can praise God for them. Perhaps when you are struggling, they come along and they have a word of encouragement. And it's in a perfect time and in a perfect place. We need to praise God for such people. We need to seek out people like that. Not people who tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear. People who will tell us the truth But do it it because they love us and they want us to see us grow. You see, Elimelech chose to live in a land that was polluted. He chose to leave Israel and go to Moab and he violated a clear commandment of the Lord. In Joshua 23, it says that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Verse 12, For if you turn your back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip in your sides and a thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. It couldn't have got any clearer for the man. Yet Elimelech chose the forbidden path to Moab over the contentment of the things in the Lord. Apart from the Bible, my second favorite book is Pilgrim's Progress. Think of Pilgrim. And that first step over the fence into Bypath Meadows. The road he was walking on was hard. It was stony. It was difficult. Yet it was the right path. And he looked. And he saw that path of soft and comfort. The path to Moab seemed to be like it went the right side of God's path. Yet it suddenly took a fork in the road and away he went, just like Pilgrim did. It was a total turning from God to the world. You see, for for Elimelech and his family, this move to Moab just didn't mean that they were moving their house and setting it over here. No, it meant a total separation from the things of God. At times, we as, as believers nowadays don't really grasp the whole structure of the temple and the worship, and all the sacrifices, even that we read this morning. They couldn't worship at the temple. 
They couldn't just drive down the road and go somewhere else. No. They couldn't bring their offerings. They couldn't keep the feasts that were commanded by the law. They were in total isolation from everything that stood for God. Moab took his wife and sons, and he went to somewhere that he should never have went. The Bible even says, For if you turn your back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, not only did he take his family with them, but he even let them marry people. Both these young boys married pagan women. It's never right for a child of God to marry an unbeliever. I said it in my own church, and I'll say it here. You young person, I don't know your church, so we only have young people who are single. But if you're middle-aged or older and you're single, this is for you and you're a believer. The Bible clearly says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Listen, don't think when you get that ring on the finger that you're going to change things. Don't listen to the lie. Listen to the Word of God. Elimelech didn't. These men violated the will of God by intermingling with this pagan race that they were told not to. Time and time and time again do we not see this in our own day, in our own situations. When someone who says that they are a believer walks away from the things of the Lord, how can they possibly serve the Lord as they should? That's why we're to take every day and repent of our sins, and every day seek the cross, and every day in fellowship with God. We're to be in this every day. Am I saying every day is going to be wonderful? No. Listen. If you're like me, there are times when I read my Bible and basically all I do is tick a box. There are times when I pray and I think, my goodness, is the ceiling right here and God doesn't hear me. And yet it's in those times that the Lord draws near to us. And perhaps a faithful brother will send a text or we'll read our Bibles more or We'll talk to someone and they'll encourage us. Friends, we have to be right with the Lord. We have to be walking on the right path. This morning, if you have somewhat thrown your leg over that stile and you're on the wrong path, I urge you this morning, come back. Just as Pilgrim had that promise, If you're a true believer and a true son of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I urge you, come back. You see, Elimelech did something even worse. It would have been one thing if he had went over there and he, he, perhaps us men, okay, you ladies, you're hearing me right, us men are sometimes really thick and stubborn. Irish are even worse, so I am in big trouble. So pray for my wife. 
But we at times can be really thick and stubborn. And at times we go, we're going here and we're going here and we're, nothing's going to change us. Now if Elimelech had got there and went, whoa, I didn't know it was going to be like this, and quickly made his way back, perhaps things would have been different. But in verse 2, it sadly tells us that they continued. That means to exist or to become. Elimelech and his family just didn't go into Moab, but sadly Moab got into them. And who knows, the Bible doesn't tell us how far this family fell. And I'm sure when they went there, they're thinking, look, the famine, maybe it'll last six months. You know, in six months, we'll come back and it'll all be good. But the days turned into weeks. And the weeks into months. And the months into into years. And before they knew it, they were there for ten long days years. And they were farther away from the Lord than perhaps they even thought they were going to be. But isn't that the deceptive nature of sin? Perhaps there are people in this room who are in Moab this this morning, and in your heart you can't even see it. Perhaps you're sitting there and you're looking at the person in front or behind or whatever, and you're thinking, well, I'm not as bad as them. Or perhaps you're sitting there and you've decided that God and, and His plan just it doesn't match up with what I'd like to do. Whatever the reason, this morning, if you are far from Him, then I urge you, please come to Him. Perhaps for some it's a burden to be at church on a Sunday. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where you can throw whatever at me. But I have to be faithful. Perhaps it's a struggle to get here on a Sunday morning. I praise God that you're having services in the afternoon, and it's what a blessing that is. Perhaps it's difficult to get to prayer meeting. And what I write here is written about me first. Before you know it, you decide to take a Wednesday night off. That's when my prayer meeting is. Before you know it, you begin to miss a Sunday evening or a Sunday afternoon service. And then all of a sudden, Sunday mornings come around and you go, man, I'm really tired, I had a long weekend, I did a lot of yard work, whatever, I'm just going to take a break. And that one Sunday turns into two Sundays. And that two Sundays turns into three Sundays and turns into four. And before you know it, your attendance is gone. Now I know the faithful men who lead this church will be on the phone wondering where you are. And if they are, don't take that as a, who does he think he is? Take that as a, that man cares for my soul. Okay? Understand that. He's not taking an attendance to know where you are. He's taking it because he loves you. And he knows that these things, just like Elimelech, those sins come in one, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And what happens? We become cold. And we become far away from God. Don't let it happen. 
as best and as hard and as much as you can, be it the means of grace. This morning, there is no greater place you could be. It's not on a soccer field when you watch your kids play football. I know I said soccer, and then I changed to football. It's actually football. Yeah. Or perhaps your kids are doing athletics. It's always the kids. They always get the rap. Sorry, children. Or perhaps, like I said, you're tired. Brothers and sisters, we in these days need to be men and women who are around the Word of God. We need to be in God's house with God's people crying on to Him. There is, a, there is nothing greater than my kids sitting in a prayer meeting, listening to the prayers of faithful men, hearing them weep for souls praying for other churches that God would fill them with the Spirit and be have, have good, faithful men. There is nothing greater in this world than to hear that, than to be with you people. I live an hour and 30 minutes away. But this morning, I got up like a giddy kid at Christmas. I get to be with these saints in Bethany. Why? Because I love you. I don't do this because I kind of like Kyle. I like Kyle a lot. Gary's up there too. And John, I don't know you that much, but you're up there as well. But it's because I want to bring God's Word because we need to be men and women in the Word. Please do not walk away from these things. Elimelech did, and he faced what we're going to see thirdly, deadly consequences. These things are not just, you know, take it or leave it. This is life and death. Perhaps it's one click in that computer. Perhaps it's one link on your phone. And you say in your heart, well, it was only once. And then suddenly once becomes twice. And you repent with your lips, but your heart doesn't do it, and you keep doing it over and over again. And soon you're ten years in Moab, and you're far away from God. This morning we need to run to Christ. All of us. None of us are perfect. If you think me standing up here is perfect, I can tell you I am far from it. None of us in this room are perfect. We need to run to the one who was perfect. The one who can forgive us from our sins. As far as the east is from the west, he tells us he will remove them. Do you believe those things? We need to be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. And remember when he was in that giant despair's castle. What did he have? He had a key of promise. He had that promise and that belief of assurance that if he was a true believer, then his sins would be forgiven. That's you this morning if you're found in Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. At times we can wallow, just like the pig lying in the, in the junk. We wallow around in it. We have been redeemed by the Savior of this world. And if you don't know this Christ, and you still are in your sins this morning, I say the same to you. Run to him. Your life can be over just like that. Where will you end up? 
Where will your never dying soul go? Because it can only go to one of two places. If we're found in Christ, we will go to heaven and be with Him. And if like Elimelech, we turn our back and we go away from God, where are we going? We're going to hell. Listen, you don't have to do anything to go to the hell place. Just keep living your life how you like it. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's a real place. It's a place in these days that people do not want to hear about. But hell is real. And the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth will happen at an appointed time that we don't know, but God does. This morning I urge you, run to the Savior. Run to the cross. Run to the only one who can forgive you for your sins. You can't do it yourself. Young people, just because your parents are believers doesn't mean you are. And just because you sit in those seats doesn't mean you get to go to heaven either. Only saving faith in Christ can do that. This morning I urge you, run to Him before it's too late. You may think, well, I'm only young. I thought that once. I'm getting old. And sin is taking a hold of my body, so to speak, where it's sore and it hurts. But while there's life, there is hope. So some of you parents who have prayed for, for, your, for your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren for years, do not give up. Pray, pray, pray without ceasing. And leave it with the Lord. Thirdly, deadly consequences. This family is going under great hardship. There's a famine in Israel, so they pluck up, they move, and they drop down in Moab, and they live there under the authority of those pagan Moabites. And we don't read here that they lived happily ever after. Tragedy strikes. The man who led his family across the border and went into that pagan land dies. First tombstone. Matters are, are moving from bad to worse. His wife Naomi is now a widow. But nevertheless, it's not all bleak just quite yet. Why? Because she still has her two sons. And her two sons, Lord willing, will care for her, and she is not yet destitute. Remember, Naomi didn't know the ending to the story like we do. It's something I keep saying in our church. I wish I could remove the end, and no one would know when we'd get to verse 7, and you'd all be like, please come back next week, Mr. Merv. We want to hear the next part. But we know the ending. But remember, Naomi didn't. And Naomi goes into this heartbreaking situation of the death of her husband. Many studies have shown us that the death of a, a spouse is one of the hardest and most difficult periods in a person's life. And then there's a but. 
If the death of a spouse is difficult, imagine your two sons die also, second and third tombstone. Naomi is now left destitute, a widow and no sons. Put yourself in her situation. You see, as God's people, we should often glean comfort in dark times. We should have joy when it's difficult. That might sound really weird. But as God-fearing people and people who believe in the doctrines of, of God, we believe in the doctrine of providence, do we not? Remember, God has a plan for all of us. We don't know what that is, but He does. At times, praise God, we don't know what it is. But remember Romans 8, 28. It's a verse that we just spew out and we don't really think about. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But there's a before period. There can be a time of hardship. There can be a time when things are really dark and really dismal. But we have to believe in our God who does all things for His good and all things for His glory. These things are brought about by the sovereign hand of God. It doesn't mean we sit on our hands and we don't do anything. You see, at times God can use sinful things and hard things for His own glory. Think of Moses. There are three people I want to talk meet in heaven. He's one of them. Think of Moses. Moses murdered that Egyptian. Murdered him. And he's forced to flee. And he endures hardship for 40 years, Exodus 2. And Moses reaps that consequence for his sinful activities, banished. But look what God used Moses to do. He brought that man and he brought him before that burning bush and he says, take your shoes off because where you are is holy land. And he gave him a purpose and he gave him what he had him to do. And that was to lead God's people out of that land, the land of Egypt. Think of Joseph. Think of Joseph's statement in Genesis 50, verse 20, where he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. His brothers threw him down a pit and tried to send him away. But God used him to keep that remnant alive by bringing them food. God uses frail and weak vessels to proclaim His truth. Is that you this morning? Do you think yourself weak and frail? Good. I urge you this morning to take the words of God and take it to the people out there. You might sit here this morning and go, Merv, I couldn't. You can. You must. We have to. 
Why? Because there are a perishing people outside of these doors who need to hear about a sovereign God. A God who forgive us our sins. A God who took sinners, the vilest perhaps we think we are, and He showed us Christ. He took that heart of stone and He gave us a heart of flesh. Brothers and sisters, we need to be a people about the work of our great God. And so we have three widows in a land full of sin. And these three widows, and they're away from the things of God, Naomi especially. And if we were to take and close our Bibles not knowing the end and walk out that door, we'd be left feeling very, very flat. I know I would. And perhaps you're sitting going, Merv, I thought you told us this book was a book of sweetness and kindness and love, and all we've heard about is death and sin and walking away. But that brings us, fourthly then, to deliberate changes. You see, the last two verses that we read, many people preached to verse 5 and stop, but to give us hope, I took us through verse 7. And the last two verses this morning help us leave this message with hope. You see, out of death and out of defeat and out of turning away, we can catch a glimpse of Naomi and a life and a victory and and the sovereign hand of God beginning to really work. Somehow or another, Naomi heard that the Lord was blessing the people again. To be truthful, the Lord had never stopped blessing But in her mind and in her husband's back then, he'd stopped, but he hadn't. Someone came to Moab and they came with that good news that God was blessing his people in Israel. And it sparked a desire in her heart to rise up and go back to where she came from. Perhaps in her mind she remembered what it was like to be close to the things of God. Maybe she remembered the sacrifices and the worship that she could embrace again. Perhaps she missed the sweet fellowship that she had enjoyed with the people of God. Whatever those thoughts were, whatever intentions were, Naomi, as it were, finally woke up in Moab and realized, I've got to go home. Gives us the picture of the prodigal son as well. Luke 15, 17 says, And when he came to himself, when the boy saw where he was and what he was missing out on, he wanted to go home. So it was with Naomi. You see, the Bible tells us that she arose that she might return from the country of Moab. Naomi rose up and left Moab behind. She'd experienced that change of heart. She could have stayed there, no doubt, and got through. But she changed. She's a picture of someone repenting of their time in Moab and, as it were, returning home, just like the prodigal son. Brothers and sisters, friend, if you're guilty this morning of going away from God into Moab, then do what Naomi did. Return home. 
Can you see that it was better for Naomi to be in back in the father's house? Just like the prodigal son. Can you remember the times when the Lord met with your soul in sweet communion? Perhaps you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking of a time when you were closer to the Lord and perhaps you served Him more faithfully and fervently than you do today. It's time to come home. It's time to bring that sin. It's time to bring the attitude, the problem, the hurt, whatever it is, and leave it at the altar before the Lord and seek forgiveness from it. It's time to repent of your sins and come home to the Father. It's time to leave your Moab behind you and get out of that place and get back to the Lord. Perhaps it's time for you to repent for the first time. Perhaps you've lived in Moab all of your life. Perhaps some of you think, well, I'm a good person. I I give money to charity. I do all these good works. You know, I sit in these seats and I show up. Does you no good. Sadly, if you think that way, you've been deceived. And you may hate me and not like me for saying it, but unless you turn to Christ, it will do you no good. Only one thing can do that, and that is having a saving relationship with Christ. This morning, run, sinner. Run to the one who has died to save you from your sins. Naomi rose up and went. And she went back to the land. She went back to the place where there was bread. She went back to Bethlehem. She went back to Judah. She was heading back to that land of praise. She was going back to where she should have been all along. She was heading home. In the middle of the 18th century, a, young, a certain young man was attending Yale University as a full-time student. His desire was to be trained for the pastoral ministry. This young man was an excellent student. And after a few years of hard study, he was so close to completing his work. However, one day an unfortunate incident occurred. The student was talking to some friends and made an unguarded remark about one of his professors where he said, that man is about as spiritual as this chair I'm sitting in. If you knew anything of Yale back in those days, anything said against a professor or anyone meant that you were expelled right away. It was wrong for him to say those things. It was wrong for him to have that attitude. It was wrong for him to be and say and do what he did. Later, he asked for repentance. And he asked the professor for forgiveness. However, being expelled, he was never allowed to be readmitted to that school. And at that point, it began perhaps one of the lowest and most depressing and most discouraging periods in the life of David Brainerd. But remember what the Bible calls us to understand. 
that even hard and difficult circumstances that we go through, God uses it for good. And God worked such a good pleasure in the life of David that after his expulsion from years from Yale, Brainard agonized over his calling. Should I or should I not? But what did God do? God opened up a service for him in the mission field to the Indians. That hadn't been Brainard's initial thought on what he wanted to do. And yet God gave him that desire after a hard and a difficult circumstance he put him through. And as we read in his autobiography, God blessed his ministry with great success. There were many revivals about. God used that event in that man's life, a hard and difficult one. And he used it for his good and for his glory and for his purpose. This morning, I pray that God would use all of us, no matter who we are, mothers, fathers, elders, pastors, whoever, that if we have true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not hide these things, that we would tell others of home, that we would tell others of the promised land, that we would tell others of the bread of life that can be given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you sit here this morning and you have not tasted and seen Christ for who He is, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to come back this afternoon. I'm going to ask you to watch some people go through the baptism service. It's a symbol. It shows us the water doesn't save them. Going underneath doesn't save them. Kyle dunking them and bringing them up doesn't save them. Christ has. And it's a visual picture and it shows us of what Christ has done in their life. I urge you to come back and witness that and see it. And then may the Lord change your heart to do the very same thing, to come and to seek Him while He may be found. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Dear Lord, what at times a challenge it can be to our hearts and a, a stirring up of our hearts when we see at times how far we can walk away from you. How at times we let sin dwell in our hearts longer than it should. At times that we walk into bypath meadows and, and as it were we turn from you. Dear Lord, we ask that you would show us Christ this morning. That if perhaps we are having our darling sins that we're not dealing with, if we've put our leg over that stile and we're walking upon the wrong path, we ask, dear Lord, that you would draw us back to yourself today. We ask that you would give us a, an honest assessment of our lives, that we would look ourselves in that mirror and that we would see Christ and not ourselves. And if it's the other way around, then we pray that we would die to ourselves and Christ would be increased. Dear Lord, we ask for those who know you not here, we ask that you would save their souls. We do not know who they are. Perhaps some even confess they are, and yet they do not know you. 
We ask this day that you would bring salvation to this place, that you would open the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, to see Christ, that that blindness and deafness would be taken from them, and that they would rejoice in a Savior who can save them from their sins. Dear Lord, we even pray for those who will go through the baptismal service later. We ask that you would be with them, that you, dear Lord, would richly encourage them this day. We pray that the devil would be far from them and that they would be encouraged by what they're about to do. And for those who look on, we ask that they would stop and ponder and think, that they would see and that they would, that they would see that visual representation of the baptism, and that they would ask themselves, where is my soul going honestly? If it's going to heaven, then help us, dear Lord, to, re- to rejoice and to praise you. And if not, then we ask that they would run to that cross quickly today while there still is hope. Dear Lord, go before us now in all that we do, for we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.